I think they, and this a lot of writers say this, that they are astonished that something that looks so contrived, as though an artist had painted it, was actually real and natural. And that was stunning to them. And, and you know, you get really early written accounts saying, I almost saw these villas rising up on the headlands because that's what they were trained to see. They were trained to see beautiful villas embowered in picturesque landscapes and they had to be romantic and by the water. Wow! <laughs> Perfect setting for real estate. So in order to get people and goods, they built this thing called a hoy, which is uh, probably an inaccurate description. It was about 12 tonnes. Um, it was either rowed or sometimes punted, you know, in shallower depths, and it, and it may have had a sail as well to help it go up and down. And it had to wait for the tide to be right because the, the estuary, what we refer to as the Parramatta River, is sometimes quite shallow. So a round trip could take sometimes as much as a week. He has this poem about um, the New South Wales contingent going to the Boer War. Lawson had this sense that Sydney Harbour was the place from which they would go and Sydney Harbour was the place to which those who survived would return. He goes into quite a lot of detail about how much suffering they could expect when they were under fire um, and he uses this image of the harbour as the thing that will get them through it. Tucked off to one side of a road that leads down to the cliffs of Ball's Head is a cleared area of rock. On the rock, we can see a distinctive outline, a giant fish or shark or whale etched into the sandstone. Inside or on top of the whale is the figure of a man. And invisible but known to be buried there somewhere is also a shoal of small fish. If we continue walking down the road, through the bush, a fantastic view is revealed to the east and to the west, where the headlands line up like children, leaning over to gaze into the rich blue depths of Sydney Harbour. All the heads that are around there, they're actually, there's a creation story that goes way back that there's seven young boys who were extremely naughty and because of their breaking the law, they got made into the headlands around there. And that's their connection. So it's a connection of male connection to land. Now bear in mind that this is female land. This is a matrilineal landscape. So it's very female orientated. And we have these stories of these young men who broke the law and were turned into stone. And they become, you know, with Longerville is Woolwich, you know, Greenwich, Wollstonecraft, Waverton, you know, which is the different headlands down there, you know, Greenwich Point, uh, Ball's Head and all those things. These link in and these are the, the special places. And this is where youth looked on the ocean and, and youth looked on the beauty and the what's provided by salt water and uh, and that's a part of it so the whale is a part of an intricate ecosystem in this hindsight program we're going to take the whale at ball's head as a starting point and a kind of metaphor for sydney harbour as a living breathing entity a spectacular waterway that's always been closely engaged with by people Though parts of the harbour have been industrialised, that relatively short period of its history is now already entering our collective memory. Sydney Harbour was never going to become another Tokyo. The landscape simply wouldn't allow it to happen. So let's head on back up the hill at Ball's Head with Dennis Foley, Professor of Aboriginal Studies at Newcastle University. And I'm Gamaragal. I'm, I'm of the Southern Gringai, so I'm a remnant of, or a descendant of the six major clans of the Northern Sydney Harbour. The Gadigal to the north, the Gatlay, the Gamaray, the Camaray, or the Gamai as we like to call them. The Barabarigal to up the harbour a little bit at the mouth of the Lane Cove River, the Taramarigal at the top of the Lane Cove area. So it's basically those six clans that cover the Lane Cove catchment area and the main beach area all the way to the mouth of the Hawkesbury. So can you describe the whale at Ball's Head? Uh, what does it actually reference? Yeah, the whale at Ball's Head is actually a part of a large ceremonial site and that is actually linked to not only Ball's Head but also uh, Blues Point, uh, Milson's Point 
and uh, and it even goes up the harbour to uh, what Clark's Point, Mans Point. Um, they're all linked in with different sites. And once there was actually engravings on all those sites or there's still remnants of um, a whale engravings there. And it all centres around Goat Island. And uh, and it's linked into the free whales that came into the harbour. There. And it circles around Goat Island because Goat Island, the area around there, is the deepest part of the harbour. And when the whales used to um, give birth in the harbour, when the whales migrated to Sydney Harbour long before uh, Europeans came here, uh, you can imagine on those points, it doesn't take much imagination to be sitting there so close to Goat Island and to have whales breaching and to have whales giving birth and to have whales you know, mothering and, and also diving with their calves down in that deeper water. And the man that's sitting on top of the whale or sitting inside the whale, as some people like to think, um, in, the, in the park there, uh, in that engraving is actually a story of the man riding the whale because a part of the um, Aboriginal law was that the men would swim out into that water or they'd go out in canoe and they would talk to the whale and they would converse with the whale and then, of course, they would ride on the whale. Just talking about, in fact, the man uh, on the whale, there's something about that man. I, I read somewhere that, um, and you can see, he's got quite chunky feet. And I read mm-hmm. that that was actually an indication of feathers on his feet, which show that he's a, a magic man. Mm, you're getting you know, a, a, a tough area to talk about. The Featherfoot is a man that walks around of a night time and usually is the person that will be involved in a payback of some sort. I think what you're seeing there is a, a different sort of covering on the feet so that it can actually grip in. And it certainly won't be feathers. Um, it'll be more of another sort of a hide that will, will hook in and, and, and grip on the whale surface. Mm. So those men that, that were involved in walking in the water or getting involved in the water, uh, it was a part of their story and there was many other stories that were told as well. Our word is courage. Courage. Mm. Yeah, which is also women as well. So yeah. the courage are the people who can brave these waters and, and really connect. They're special people. A, a courage is the person who can create a war, can stop a war, can mend a broken bone, can create a love potion, can uh, heal a fever, can do an enormous range of skills and talents. They are a bureaucrat, a politician, and a medical doctor, a medical practitioner, so uh, and a spiritualist. And they had to show their strength and their power. And possibly this is one of the um, the ceremonies that they would have been involved in, because you're swimming with the deity. The connection. See, we work on on seven seasons. So when you go through ceremony and you get the scarifications on your body, you go through different seasons. And we have a six season uh, year. So our our entire world and our our understanding, our philosophy of life is based around six seasons. But as a man or a woman, you go through and you learn season after season. So you build up to, to six seasons. A Kuruji is a seven season person. So they actually know the six seasons of the living world and they also know the season of the world beyond. And that's what gives them their power. Um, can, do, am I making myself clear on that? It's, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and because uh, I've never really spoken about that before in public. Now you can imagine the whale. It is the creation of a seven-seasoned person. It's a seven-seasoned human uh, because it has got such skill and knowledge of looking after the oceans. The whale was was thought to be much higher than what we were. So uh, you can see why there was trying to be a connection with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what that ceremony was all about. Can I ask you an ignorant question? Mm-hmm. How can you tell that it's the humpback? Which, which whale is which? Oh, by the story that's involved with that area. Um, for example, up at the top of uh, French's Forest, there's several large whale engravings there, and they're humpback. There's a, several engravings in, in Colin Candle Creek and Cowan Creek, and they're humpback. And it's purely just the story that's told through and told through an oral history and told down the lines. And we told the story of the humpback, that we told the story of the song. Uh, we told the story of how the women used to be able to sing and make a noise with their feet in the sand, and uh, and they were able to converse and they were able to, to bring the sick one in. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Definitely. When there was a sick whale you know, floundering around, now, do you want to see a whale who's in traditional story, it's actually related to us. So there's a strong connection. We, we know that the whale once walked the land. We know that the whale breathes just like a human. We know the whale has genitalia just like, uh, very similar to human. Uh, we know the whale bleeds and it bleeds warm blood. So there's a strong connection between us and the whale that it once walked the land and it went back into the sea. And our job is to look after the ecosystem on the land and the whale's job 
to us spiritually is to look after the ecosystem of the ocean. So there's that strong bond at a much higher plane of, you know, our roles. So when one of them is sick, do you want to see it, you know, like just thrash around the waves and be torn apart by a shark? Or do you want to call it in and then it's committed suicide in some ways, but it's providing nourishment for the future generation of human. So when you call a whale in, it's a huge feast. It's a massive feast. You, you've got this privilege of all this beautiful heavy meat in winter time because usually that's when it happens and usually at the end of winter when things are pretty poor so it's a time of great celebration because it also enables all the other clans and all the other the other aboriginal groups to come in to the area where the whale has been beached and and to feast and you can also rekindle uh, clan commitments uh, border commitments uh, marriages all sorts of things so the feast of a whale is much more than just having a pig out on food um, it, it's a very big, strong spiritual kinship uh, connection. And the whale is a part of that ceremony. A whale is a part of a, a certain time of great happiness and of great spirituality because you know, you've got deities, you've got God you know, swimming in the harbour. You can imagine our heartache when the first fleet arrived and the first thing they did was strip the harbour of fish and there's a story of five sailors that got killed in a, a, a humpback whale, kept smashing into their boat. They were out fishing, and I think only one guy survived. And that was down off um, Shark Island or Pig and Sows Island or whatever it is, uh, down the harbour a bit. But one of our stories is that whale actually was so angered by them taking all the fish and stealing the food from us that it attacked that boat and it kept attacking and attacking and attacking. And that's the story told in our oral history. When the first European settlers came through Sydney Harbour Heads, there was no doubt they were impressed. Archival writings show they were stunned by the beauty of the harbour, even if living beside it was rather more difficult than they could have imagined. But we'll leave those very early settlers, and 20 years on joined Scottish Governor Lachlan Macquarie and his wife Elizabeth. As historian Grace Carskins points out, by now there's quite a thriving settlement and all the houses faced the harbour, watching for the ships as they brought food, news and goods to sell. Macquarie was probably surprised when he and Elizabeth sailed in because this was not a dump at all. It was a flourishing port town already. It had quite substantial buildings, which of course we know that he was interested in, and a thriving economy. It had been belted around a bit by floods, and so there was a bit of a food shortage, but the population was growing, and people here were already proud of their colony and what they'd built out of it. And this was great material if you were a Macquarie, because you know this was something you could work with. It had potential, and the harbour in particular, I think, must have struck them as absolutely wonderful, as it did everybody else. And one man was there to paint it in all its splendour, convicted and unrepentant forger Joseph Lysett. Aside from the five-shilling notes he illicitly created, he also saw himself as an illustrator of the burgeoning colony and his paintings fitted right into the Macquarie's intellectual and deeply allegorical worldview. One in particular of his collection of views in Australia tells us much about the harbour and the Macquarie's. Historian Ian Hoskins. Lysard did many sketches and paintings of, of New South Wales while he was out here and looked to publish these pictures in a set called Views of Australia that were in fact published in Britain in 1825. The watercolour you're referring to, one version of that appears in his published book and it does show a, a family who were almost certainly not there um, in the 1810s or 1820s when, when Lysett was sketching that image because they, there were Aboriginal people around the harbour but they wouldn't have looked like that and I suspect they weren't sort of conveniently walking in front of the painting. But they are allegorical and, and they, they seem to be leaving the harbour and behind them is this extraordinary villa called Henrietta Villa which is one of the most magnificent early houses on, on the harbour, no longer in existence. And beyond that again is the, the township of Sydney. And it conforms to a, a pattern of early topographical painting that can be read allegorically or metaphorically where Aboriginal people and the natural landscape, sometimes with some fauna as well, but bushes and rocks, are there in the foreground to suggest an early state of humanity, what's sometimes referred to as state of savagery, in the midground, almost always 
are the signs of civilization that the, the British have bought, so the villas and, and the township itself. And they're representing the subsequent stages in human history, and that is the, the state of civilization and culture. And the sky representing um, the celestial, <laughs> representing God essentially, in the high ground. So it's getting lighter as we go up from through the painting, you know, dark foreground up to this brilliant sky. And, and you look at colonial paintings time and time again, and that's, that's the order in which they unfold. And the harbour is there in the middle, and the harbour is the, in Sydney, is, is the place at which this new civilization, possibly this new power, is taking root. In contemplating the progressive effects of colonisation, even slightly as they are sketched in these few pages and exhibited in the following views, the mind is naturally led into reflections upon the origin and decay of nations. In these infant settlements of Australia, we might behold the germs of a mighty empire. Joseph Lysett, Views in Australia, 1824. Yes, it's a typical one of Lysett's, I think. It shows in the foreground a family of Aboriginal people walking and in the background, in the far distance, a very romantic rendition of Henrietta Villa, which was a beautiful house, very famous in its time, uh, built on Point Piper by John Piper, and of course named Henrietta Villa after Elizabeth Macquarie. Her, her middle name was Henrietta. I must say, I think there was some kind of relationship between them. I don't know if you can say that on air, but I've read the letters. They're quite flirtatious. <laughs> Anyway, he did name the house after her and it was a beautiful classical house, possibly designed also by Greenway. And it really represented where people like the Macquaries and the other elite thought the colony was heading. And they really revelled in it. I mean, they really celebrated the fact that you could build houses like this in these beautiful places and that the money was available to do it too. The, the thing that I'm thinking of too here is is the idea, the classical idea of the stages of civilization. You know, are these people playing a role in a grander tableau? Oh, yes, they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if you're from the educated classes in England and Scotland, and of course the Macquaries come from Scotland, and that's where this idea came from. It came from the philosophers David Hume and Adam Smith. These philosophers uh, were inspired by the Enlightenment, of course, and they had a new theory of history and it caught on like wildfire because it seemed to make sense to people. To us, it doesn't make sense, but to them, it really made sense. There were basically four stages of history and the first stage was, of course, savagery and the Aborigines were, of course, relegated to that level. Uh, Then there was grazing or pastoralism, but higher than that, of course, was agriculture and the British people have had a a really complete faith in agriculture for a very long time. I mean, it goes back to biblical times, doesn't it? You have to settle down and farm the land. And finally, the crowning achievement is, of course, commerce and urban life and the arts, and that's what you get in the highest level of civilisation. So it's, it's also a predictive painting. A lot of these paintings were of this period because it's actually saying to you, here are the stages of civilization, and we're going through them all at the same time. You know, we're fast forwarding in Sydney. We're really on track here. And Lysette was Macquarie's artist and so he would have been painting to his taste and Macquarie would have loved this because this is how Macquarie thought about the colony too. Tell me what the Macquaries did see when they entered the heads. What sort of vision was it to them? I guess with this grander tableau in mind. I think it would have surprised them. I don't think that they, knowing what had happened in Sydney, we'd had the mutiny in 1808, there'd all been these hideous stories about it being a desert and a moral pit of of depravity with the convicts out there. That was the standard idea about the colony in England, if they thought about it at all. So when they sailed through, I think they were astonished. And it's very dramatic. You think of those cliffs, those yawning cliffs as you sort of sail up the side of uh, the coastline and then the two headlands, these great portals into the harbour, these gaunt great rock piles and then, of course, the, the glorious kind of headlands and the scattered bays and the little islands. I think they would have been enchanted like everybody else but especially Elizabeth because Elizabeth Macquarie is uh, very well educated. She's an admirer of the picturesque 
And this harbour fits straight into the tradition of the 18th century ideal of the picturesque. Can you explain what that was and how the harbour fits into it? Well, this is a great fashion uh, among the well-educated and intelligentsia in the 18th century. It was an, an admiration of nature, basically. It had to include variety. It had to include contrasts, prettiness, like being in a painting, like it had to be framed by certain things and it had to really grab your eye and enter your heart. That was really the art of the emotions, um, and it was a very high stage to have reached. So so the harbour itself, with its rock piles, yes. which are ruin-like, and the framing of the heads and the, the, you know, the trees against the beaches and that kind of thing, would have almost looked manufactured and therefore picturesque. I think they, and this, a lot of writers say this, that they are astonished that something that looks so contrived as though an artist had painted it, was actually real and natural. And that was stunning to them. And, and you know, you get really early written accounts saying, I almost saw these villas rising up on the headlands because that's what they were trained to see. They were trained to see beautiful villas embowered in picturesque landscapes and they had to be romantic and by the water. Wow! Mm. <laughs> Perfect setting for real estate. This program has a personal significance. After a peripatetic childhood without a sense of any one hometown, I find that my ancestry began where I now live, in Sydney, and it has a poignant connection with the harbour. My Scottish great-great-great-grandfather Robert Ward was one who had also sailed into the harbour during the Macquarie's time, and the arrival of his ship, the Mangles, was noted by the governor. On my arrival at Government House this morning, I found the ship Mangles Transport, commanded by Captain John Coggle, with 189 male convicts from England, had arrived in the harbour, having sailed from Falmouth on 11th of April last. The convicts have arrived in good health, one only having died on the passage. I've received numerous public dispatches and private letters by this opportunity, all of them being of a pleasant and satisfactory nature. In fact, Robert Ward came to know the waters quite intimately, kept as he was for several months on a leaky prison hulk by the name of the Phoenix. Ian Hoskins has recently had published Sydney Harbour, A History. Discussing his book, we choose to sit at Lavender Bay on the northwestern side of the Harbour Bridge. And I'm moved to find out Lavender Bay was once Hulk Bay and Robert Ward's Phoenix was moored just off its shores. Lavender Bay gets its name from George Lavender, who was in charge of the convicts on, I think, what was Sydney's only prison hulk, a ship called the Phoenix uh, that bobbed around in Lavender Bay before that. Therefore, the, the bay had been known as Quibbery, the Aboriginal word for freshwater spring, it then became known as Hulk Bay after the Hulk the Phoenix and, and then Lavender Bay after George Lavender. And in very recent times, as we've gone to a dual naming um, system in Sydney Harbour, it's reverted to both Lavender Bay and Guabri. Lavender Bay's post-colonial story continued as it became a significant place in the claiming of the harbour for and by the people. There were one and at 1.2 bathhouses at the um, head of the bay, big wooden structures, people around Sydney and some who have visited Sydney may be familiar with the Dawn Fraser Baths at Balmain. They would have been structures very similar to that. Um, and they were built in the 1880s and first operated, I think the first operator was a chap called Professor Cavill from, from Great Britain who was a specialist in swimming. He'd made some attempts to swim the the channel unsuccessfully, but was regarded as an expert at, at swimming at the time. A period where competitive swimming is really just starting to um, find its feet. And both men and women, you know, swam in these baths. And so when there were two baths here, there, there was one for men and one, one for women. And that survived, the, the last structure survived until the 1970s when it was really decrepit and, and dismantled. 
can I ask you about um, why the baths were built? Because I think what they mark is the beginning of a shift in attitude, the harbour beginning to be preserved for people and for leisure. The idea was mooted around 1825 of preserving public foreshore, um, but at that point quite a lot had been given away, yeah? Well, yes. 1828 is an important date in the history of, of Sydney Harbour because at that point... Um, that a 100-foot reservation is set around any foreshore land that hadn't already been either sold or given away as a grant. Okay, so, so finally the authorities realise that the foreshore has um, strategic and commercial importance, okay, and we should be hanging on to it as, as public land in some way. In the 1860s, the local Member of Parliament, a chap called William Tunks, fought successfully to have a little patch of beach, again at the head of Lavender Bay, a tidal beach, uh, preserved for swimming. Uh, there was a chap who owned land above that. Uh, the Milson family, in fact, wanted to buy that land back and then have it for wharfage. You know, the harbour by that stage was, was valuable for wharfage. William Tunks was a Democrat, you know, at, at a time when the, the democratic spirit is rising throughout the colony and, and in Sydney particularly. So he really was interested in, in the idea of public land at a time when, you know, that wasn't terribly popular. A lot of um, bits of foreshore had simply been granted away and then subsequently sold, and lots of the land to the east of the harbour as well. In the 1860s, when there were very, you know, after various defence scares, that land was resumed. So a lot of the headlands to the east of the harbour around Bradley's Head, and they have subsequently survived as recreational areas. And so Tunks won that battle, and it became a little swimming beach here. And when you see photographs of it, it's a triangular shaped bit of tidal beach and around that there was a small enclosure built to protect the swimmers from sharks and then a more elaborate structure was built by the 1880s and that's the one that Professor Cavill took over and, and leased and ran successfully for many years and that bars continued on um, as an important local site and, and attracted people from further afield too right into the 20th century and it was only really superseded when the North Sydney Olympic pool was built in the 1930s and that became one of the best um, facilities for competitive swimming in Sydney or indeed in Australia um, and has a remarkable set of world records attached to it. You know, Dawn Fraser and the Conrads were swimming there and breaking records through the 50s and the, and the 60s. So the tradition has continued on, but it was started there very interestingly with democratic intent by William Tunks. From here you can see the ferries that trawl up and down the harbour and in fact I think this is the last year that the lady class ferries, the 1975 ferries, will run. But that aside, what was the first ferry on the harbour? Probably Sydney Harbour's first ferry was a boat referred to as the Lump. And, and it was a flat-bottomed, almost like a punt, that was built in Sydney Cove in the 1790s. And its purpose was to carry people and goods between Sydney Cove and the second settlement up at Parramatta. And it... And it did that successfully for quite a number of years, although apparently it wasn't a very elegant vessel. Essentially a flat bottom boat, you know, a punt and, and possibly simply a platform that was not, not particularly um, expertly put together. It was about 12 tonnes. Um, it was either rowed or sometimes punted, you know, in shallower depths. And it, and it may have had a sail as well to help it go up and down. And it had to wait for the tide to be right because the, the estuary, what we refer to as the Parramatta River, is sometimes quite shallow. So a round trip could take sometimes as much as a week, you know, if the tides weren't right and you know, if it was slow going. But by, by the 1830s, you know, which is only 40 years later, we have steam vessels on Sydney Harbour, which gives you an idea of how the place has, has moved along from what was always intended to be, in my mind, a, a penal colony. What develops almost organically is a, is a civil society and a, and a commercial port. From Lavender Bay, we can take a short wander back to Bull's Head and forward in time. Post-settlement, the whale engraving was becoming obscured. And then, in the 1920s, a tarmac road was built and its runoff covered the whale. The road was, as far as the great Australian writer Henry Lawson saw it, the last straw for Bull's Head. A bush remnant, it was to be developed for a coal loader and Lawson expressed his distress in a poem. They're taking it, the shipping push, as all the rest must go. The only spot of cliff and bush that harbour people know. 
The spirit of the past is dead. North Sydney has no soul. The state is cutting down Ball's head to make a wharf for coal. And strings of grimy trucks shall run in everlasting trains. And on the cliffs where wild trees are shall stand the soulless cranes to dump their grimy loads below where great brown rocks are grand. And the deep grass and wild flowers grow and boating couples land. No more shall poorer families give grandma and granddad a glimpse of nature's mysteries to make their old hearts glad. No more our eyes shall be relieved in the city's garish day. A sordid crime has been achieved and none has aught to say. Ball's Head is one of those areas in North Sydney that survived intense development because it was part of a huge early 19th century land grant, in fact. So the people who owned the land, um, originally Edward Wollstonecraft and then Alexander Berry, had no need to develop it. They did hold out some hope of building wharfage around there, but that never transpired. So by the early part of the 20th century, it's covered in what Henry Lawson described as really natural bushland. You know, he, he remarked upon it in at least a couple of poems, and it was one of his favourite places around North Sydney. But then in uh, 1918, they built a coal loader on the western side, and it was a state-of-the-art coal loader with a huge jetty and gantries and, and hoppers that was there for the colliers to dump their coal and you could load up as well, the steamers going on to somewhere else. So the road down to Ball's Head sort of went down the spine of the peninsula and yeah, it covered the part of that carving. You know, it was the industrial, it was the industrial harbour and the moving power of coal that had been identified as early as the 1830s by Darwin as being, you know, an important part of the future of Sydney Harbour. The carvings were known to, to Europeans and were of interest to many Europeans as well, no doubt about it. But, you know, they were inconsequential when compared to the, you know, the needs of the economy and job creation and all the rest of it. So I'd suspect little thought was given to the construction of the road, which covered the, the little shoal of fish at the bottom end of the, of the carving. There was a sense in which they were disappearing and they were in themselves metaphors for the fate of the people who created them. By the end of the 19th century, it's very much a linear view of history and it's onwards and ever upwards, and the British Empire was a good example of that, you know, and we'll never look back, we'll move forward, and that's evolution, and, you know, people go by the wayside and it's survival of the fittest. So how did Henry Lawson feel about the arrival of this coal loader? Henry Lawson was appalled by the thought of a coal loader on the western side of Ball's Head because he saw it as the last little natural sanctuary for what he described as the harbour people. They're the people he had known since the 1880s, and had written about since the turn of the 20th century in poems and short stories, and was really very fond of. Toward the end of his life, Henry Lawson returned to his early roots, having stayed with family as a young writer in North Sydney in the 1880s. In the early 1900s, he was down and out, living off and on in various houses around Blues Point. And so the coves and the harbour people are drawn together through time. Lawson's beloved Blues Point was named for ferryman Billy Blue, whose daughter in the century before married George Lavender of Lavender Bay, just around the corner. The poetry and prose Lawson wrote about the places and characters of North Sydney's harbour is somewhat dismissed by the academic world, says Lawson scholar Chris Lee. But Lawson's later work is nonetheless valuable as miniatures of a certain time, word pictures of people and place. The last 20 years were really very difficult for Lawson. His marriage disintegrated, he declined into alcoholism and poverty, there were periods of vagrancy, uh, a lot of his friends tried to help him, and of course his landlady Mrs Byers was terrific to him in those years. But most scholars generally agree that the writing declined significantly in that period. And, and the Alderman Lane stories from North Sydney are, are really, the, I suppose, the brightest spot in that last 20 years of his life. What are the Alderman Lane stories? Uh, they're a collection of stories about his life in North Sydney, about the way he used to travel across the harbour into Sydney to the Bulletin office and the Angus and Robertson offices seeking money hooking up with acquaintances, 
they really amount to quite a touching ethnography of the down-and-out people who lived in that area of North Sydney at that time. And he had certain routes that he would traverse. Yes, he has this really lovely narrative going where he talks about how the the kind of upper working-class uh, characters, that they'd go into town and they'd have a big night and get plastered and then they'd behave disgracefully on the ferry going back that night. So the next morning what they'd do is they'd sneak down Blues Point Road and hop on the horse and cart ferry so that they could sneak into town by this little lane called Elderman's Lane without being seen by the people in front of whom they'd disgraced themselves the evening before. OK. In fact, he actually wrote a poem about the horse ferry, didn't he? The story of Jerry Brown, who liked a tipple. It, it is a, a feature of Lawson's work that in other people, particularly people uh, who've had a troubled past and who are down on their luck, he sees in them a mirror for his own fortunes. So Jerry Brown would, would head into town. And actually, you know, I just think the poems are very touching and very funny. He would head into town, get completely smashed, come home on the ferry and, and insult people and generally carry on. And then in his shame to get back across to the city in the, in the cold light of day, he'd, he'd sneak across on the horse ferry. Uh, that's right. The character has the name of Johnson in the, in the prose version of the story. Um, and in one of the Elder Man Lane stories, he describes a number of the characters and, and their misfortunes. And he quite poignantly at the end of the story decides to step off the horse and cart ferry and let it go over on its own because he figures that it was carrying a heavy enough burden as it was without his own burden. It's, it's actually interesting that it's on the horse and cart ferry is where Lawson feels he or Jerry Brown could let loose and be himself and not be on his best behaviour, and this being of yourself was important there. Yes, I think that's a class thing. I think because the horse and cart ferry collected those people who didn't have enough money, really, to go by the normal ferry. Um, and so they were people from the lower portions of society, and, and they developed something of a community because they don't put each other under pressure by looking for respectability in, in each and every one. I might get you to speak about the harbour people themselves as a multicultural group. Well, it is interesting when, when you look at Lawson's work and, and certainly when you see the way in which he's been invoked by more contemporary cultural commentators, Lawson's seen really as a representative of white Australia. And when you look at these stories, there's Jackie the Ragman, who's a West Indian. Uh, there's Ardam, the Chinaman. And, and Benno, I think, has, has Turkish origins. But it, it is interesting that it's not a picture of white Australia, that it is a picture of a racially mixed Australia. And this really fits in with Lawton's idea of the working poor as being a down-and-out class, a class of people that are, are really a little bit beyond the pale. They're removed from the respectable classes. But there's a great deal of sympathy and Lawson's sense of community certainly encompasses racial difference in those stories. He's, he's very inconsistent on race, Henry Lawson, but he was very inconsistent on a lot of things. Uh, but certainly his view of this North Sydney community is of a multiracial community. You know, in some ways you could say his relationship, his passion and his anxiety for both the future of the harbour as a, as a wild space and as a, a place for recreation for the harbour people was captured by the poem, The Sacrifice of Ball's Head. The poem's a relatively simple poem and it builds on some of the other lyric celebrations of the harbour that Lawson had written. He really just describes how the place is significant because it's somewhere where poor people can get a view of the harbour and appreciate its beauty. So it has in it the germ of the idea of the, the public park, setting aside public spaces so that everybody of all classes of society can appreciate the beauty of the harbour. Uh, and there's a sense that this was one of the few places that was available to what we might now call the working poor. And the sense of wild nature in the inner city it has romantic associations that help redeem the respectability of the working class citizens of the area. They can visit that area and there's a sense that they're kind of ennobled uh, by nature in doing so. Uh, you don't get the same kind of respectability or ennoblement uh, from a wharf um, or a coal loading operation.
I think the poems where he celebrates the harbour are very conventional. He loves the ferries, he loves the boats, he describes them moving across the harbour um, and their wake. He loves the sandstone cliffs, uh, he loves the light, the sun, the sunsets, uh, all those things that really everybody who knows Sydney Harbour appreciates. He has this poem about the New South Wales contingent going to the Boer War and uh, he suggests that the boys should fight and that when things get really tough, they should hang on. And, and one of the sources of inspiration that he describes, their memories of taking their girlfriends to Manly um, and the sense that they'll be waiting on Circular Quay to wave them uh, and cheer them when they come home. And that, in fact, the images of the harbour were to be a source of strength for them that they could carry with them as, as they fought. That's right. He, he goes into quite a lot of detail about how much suffering they could expect when they were under fire. Um, and he uses this image of the harbour as the thing that will get them through it. Ironically, Henry Lawson died just a few years before Ball's head was made into the bush reserve it is today. And these days, if you stand by one of the old sandstone walls of the headland, the eastern view of the harbour is interrupted, not only by the great arc of the harbour bridge, but also by a prominent block of flats known as Blues Point Tower. Completed in 1961, though not much different from the crowd of more contemporary buildings at nearby North Sydney, it stands alone on Blues Point. It has long and loudly been derided for its ugliness, for its uncompromising refusal to blend with the landscape. But while Lawson would have hated its modernity, he may well have related to its intent. From the ABC archives, here's architect Harry Seidler. You know, I know a lot of people say a lot of nasty things about Blues Point Tower. The fact is that I think it's one of my best buildings. McMahon's Point was being zoned at that time for waterfront industry, which is really quite an outrageous notion by today's standards. What an absurd thing to suggest that this beautiful peninsula sticking in the harbour should have industry on its shores. So a group of us got together and did a plan to encourage the authorities to rezone that for residential purposes. And the big plan was developed to show how, I don't know, 300 people per acre or something, quite a high density, could live on this peninsula where everybody would have a view of the water. Uh, and this was a claim to be a wonderful idea. Uh, it is a bit like a shag on a rock, but the way it started uh, is that it was part of a, a, a development of high-rise and high-density buildings all the way up the peninsula of McMahon's Point. I think what people really object to, of course, is that it, ha it happened and nothing happened about the rest of it. And seeing the way Sydney develops now, instead of people living out in Penrith and beyond, uh, for more people to live closer to the centre makes all the sense in the world. It was intended that it be part of a much larger precinct of similar towers and other maisonette blocks because in the late 1950s, the architect who designed it, Harry Seidler, was part of a group who got together with local residents, the McMahon's Point and Lavender Bay Progress Association, to put forward this very ambitious idea for developing McMahon's Point as a residential precinct. It had been a mixed-use precinct. There had been industry around McMahon's Point and Lavender Bay with the boat building for many years. There was to be a, um, a cement works built at, at McMahon's Point. Now there'd been uh, a huge timber yard there and there were more boat yards around Berries Bay as well so it was quite an industrial part of um, Sydney Harbour but the idea that you would put a cement factory or a depot there in McMahon's Point appalled the locals and it appalled Harry Seidler who was still a fairly recent immigrant and who fell in love with Sydney Harbour from the moment he saw it although he was himself disgusted by the, the sprawl of, of Sydney's suburbs, which he saw first thing when he, when he got off the plane at Mascot. And he was intent on reclaiming, is perhaps the wrong word, but turning Sydney Harbour into a, a residential harbour rather than an industrial harbour. And this was one way to do it. And he brought to bear his absolute high modernist planning principles because he was a man educated in Europe and America and he believed in the precepts of the... European masters, Mies van der Rohe, and particularly Le Corbusier, you know, whose 
idea of planning was to to plan everything down to the nth degree. And so Blue's Point, while it looks singularly um, unattached to its environment now, when you see it in the context of the plan, was one of many buildings, all of which were arranged to facilitate views. There was public land around there. There were cultural facilities. There was lawn. There was access to the foreshore, in fact. You know, he, he believed all of that. So there was a democratic principle underpinning this in order to achieve that. So one building was not blocking out the, the view for another, you needed to plan it down to the nth degree and that may involve clear felling existing precincts in order to do that and start from scratch. You know, mm. he, he wasn't a believer in organic architecture or organic cities. Caroline Butler-Bowden is Assistant Director of the Historic Houses Trust and she's long been fascinated with Blues Point Tower. The important thing about Blues Point Tower is it wasn't meant as luxury units. It was meant as quite modest apartments for people of average means, albeit in the best sighting in the whole of Australia. So it's a really interesting building. It was very much about a statement against urban sprawl. There was considerable concern growing in the 1950s about the cost of the low density scatteration of Sydney suburbs, both the physical effects and the economics, obviously the costs of it. And so Harry Seidler and others really wanted to look at a different type of housing for Australia and to introduce you know, a kind of urbanity, a different type of urban living for people who could just get a ferry across the harbour to work. Did that signal the end of the working harbour, that particular period, you know, the late 50s, early 60s? Well, it was the beginning of the shift in, you know, changes to the manufacturing sector and, you know, there were lots of sites, disused warehouses and factories along the harbour. And of course, we've seen that in the large scale sites now along Parramatta River, for instance, Breakfast Point, Cape Cabarita and others where contaminated land and toxic kind of soils have been removed and given over now to what is mostly luxury living now along the harbour side. Because of course, real estate, you know, real estate runs Sydney. It's, it's the defining... Um, it defines the economics of the city in some ways, doesn't it? Yeah, real estate does define the economics of Sydney and has been critically important for a very, very long time. And I suppose Blues Point Tower is, is one important part in that story. Mm. Not least of all, because Blues Point Tower was the first strata title building in Australia. What did it mean, strata title? It meant that up until the 1960s, 90% of people who lived in flats or apartments were renters. Whole blocks were owned by investors who rented them out. Strata title finally introduced the ability for the average person to finally be able to buy an apartment. A in part the, of a building. A part of a building, mm. exactly. In the same way that they could get a mortgage for a house. You know, there's discussion about apartments being like asparagus growing from their beds all over the harbour. And there was a, you know, there was some reaction, needless to say, to this. I mean, the other thing is that it created a real stir, obviously, when it was built in the sense that you know, potential buyers were flown in helicopters to the height uh, so that they could drink in the view that could be theirs. So, it Even was, though it wasn't for the rich? Even though it wasn't for the rich, yeah. I mean, they certainly weren't poor. You know, they were people of um, middle-class means. When this was built, what was the harbour like? Was it more industrial? How was his architecture going to address that? Well, yeah, the harbour was definitely more industrial. You know, it was before the harbour became as redundant due to technological changes. Obviously there's been huge shift in the way we do business and um, obviously Port Botany and the kind of development of other sort of freight channels in and out of the city has meant radical change to the harbour. But it was also at the beginnings of this understanding, I think, of what the harbour could offer for residential living. Um, I mean, obviously there'd always been houses along the harbour and interwar flats and other sorts of dwellings. But, I mean, Harry Seidler's vision was definitely one of urbanity, urbanity for the people who could live close to the city and for what the city could offer. And it was, it was an alternative to the sacredness, I suppose, of the three bedroom houses and the quarter acre block and that 
strong self-image of Australians as being people who live in houses. I mean, I love Blues Point Tower. I've spent a lot of time working on it and I suppose I understand its rationale and I understand where it fits within uh, the greater scheme of apartment living and the history of apartment living in Australia. I mean, I understand why people might not appreciate its aesthetic because clearly it's a very strong statement at the harbour's edge. But I think we have many, many examples of poor apartment design and I don't think Blues Point Tower is an example of poor apartment design. One of the effects of, of Blues Point, which was the only building to be realised of that plan, is that it made planners realise what impact it had when you stuck a very tall building on a, on a headland and subsequent authorities like Nigel Ashton, who was um, the head of the state planning authority in the, in the 1960s, looked at that as an example of what shouldn't be allowed to happen. And he was responsible for uh, buying back a lot of the headlands like Clark Point and like Longnose Point in Balmain and making sure that they weren't developed in that way. The point being that when you looked up and down the harbour and you saw the many headlands, you saw them as undeveloped natural headlands and it just gave you a, a, a sense of a, a, almost like a park on a harbour. That was his thinking. Sydney Harbour hasn't been a passive stage on which human history has played. The landscape has always been intertwined with human activity, from the earliest creation stories when some errant young Aboriginal men were turned into seven of the harbour's headlands. The harbour's park-like beauty, its cliffs and coves, beaches and bays, have profoundly influenced the development of Sydney as a place to live, to observe and to contemplate. Look, it's clearly the case that people shape landscapes, um, but it, I think it's also the case that landscapes are themselves active in the way that we understand them. So beauty has shaped our European responses to Sydney Harbour from the very beginning of colonisation, you know, from Macquarie through to Henry Lawson to the building of Blues Point Tower, and probably actually in the very beginning when Aboriginal people chose to, to inscribe that picture of the whale on the, the rock at, at Ball's Head. Uh, you know, Sydney harbour has been a prison, it's been a commercial centre, it's been a working waterfront, but it seems to me that, that beauty has won out in the end and in the past 30 years we now have a harbour surrounded by parks and high-priced residences simply because so many people want to see and be near this really extraordinary beautiful waterway.